Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open up to John 12. We're continuing to work through that gospel. And uh, despite the snow this morning, it's almost the middle of April. And you know what that means. It is the height of tax season. And uh, if you are an accountant, uh, or if you are one who has uh, family members who are accountants, uh, you know what that means. Uh, Long hours uh, and stressful days leading up to uh, the deadline. Uh, Usually what April 15th, I think it's... There's a, a special extension over the weekend, so April 18th this year. Uh, and some of you are writing a to-do uh, reminder right now. Do taxes, do next Monday. Uh, which is uh, it's understandable, right? We, we have a tendency uh, to, to shrink back or procrastinate on uh, big projects uh, or big dates that are unenjoyable, right? Uh, with big events that we are not looking forward to, uh, they, they have a, a habit of casting a shadow uh, over our lives uh, in the days that lead up to them. Now, if we know that something is, is difficult or unpleasant, uh, we tend to rehearse that unpleasantness ahead of time, right? And we start to drag our feet uh, as it draws near. Uh, and uh, again, the, the storm clouds uh, come from this. Uh, and uh, you might feel uh, the storm clouds gathering uh, at the idea of having to do your taxes. Uh, you might feel storm clouds uh, gathering over your life as uh, you have to prepare for maybe a, a big exam for school or maybe a big uh, certification uh, for your career. Uh, it might be a trip to the dentist uh, that casts a big shadow over your life. It's not going to be enjoyable when you sit down in that chair, uh, but that appointment is still coming nevertheless. Or maybe a significant surgery that will have uh, a, a long uh, recovery time. Uh, events like this uh, cast a, a long shadow over our lives. And so in our sanctified imaginations, we can imagine what it would have been like for Jesus. Right? Who, who knows ahead of time, uh, as he's going to Jerusalem, he knows what is going to take place. Uh, not only that he is going to die, that would be enough of a, a shadow caster, right? If you knew the, the date of your death. How would that impact the, the, the remaining days that you have on the earth? Uh, so, so that would cast a shadow. But, but Jesus doesn't just know that he's going to, uh, to die on a particular day. Uh, he knows the way he's going to die. A brutal death on the cross. Uh, and he knows that he's going to face something even greater on the cross than, uh, than the scourging of the Romans uh, and, and the mocking of uh, the Jewish leaders. He's going to face something far, far greater. That casts a a dark shadow uh, probably over his entire life and ministry. But but as we come to John 12, we are in the the final week of his life and ministry here on the earth. Uh, It has all been building to this point and and the shadows are getting darker and darker. Uh, And I think Jesus is feeling the weight of everything that is just but a few days away. As I mentioned, John 12 takes us into the Passion Week. And you could look at John 12 as four separate scenes. In verses 1 through 11, we we have a scene of Mary anointing uh, Jesus with with costly perfume. Uh, And that is in preparation for his death. It's foreshadowing. 
verses 12 to 19, we have the, the, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, what is known as the triumphal entry. Now, he comes not riding on a war horse, but on a, a donkey. He's coming to, to seek and bring peace that, that, that the nation of Israel doesn't even comprehend or desire. And there's a, a third scene uh, where the, the announcement that his hour has finally come, and this is uh, in verses 20 through 36. And there's a fourth scene where, where Jesus is going to speak about the unbelief of the world. Verses 37 through 50. And we are in the middle of this, this third scene. And as we have worked our way through it, in verses 20 through 22, we saw there were some Greeks who, who came uh, and approached one of Jesus' disciples because they couldn't get to him. Uh, and they approached Philip and said, hey, can you get us an audience with Jesus? We, we want to we speak to him. They, Philip brought them to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came to, to Jesus. And then if you look at verse 23, this is how Jesus responded to uh, Andrew and Philip coming and saying, Hey, there are these Greeks who want to speak to you. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we, we've looked at that in weeks past, how uh, over throughout John's gospel, we kept hearing it's not the hour yet. Now, it hasn't arrived, and that's where Jesus is going to create controversy, and then he's going to be able to, uh, to walk right out of an angry crowd without being stoned. He's going to escape with his life multiple times because his hour had not yet come, but then suddenly it, the hour is here. Now, these Gentiles coming to speak to uh, the Jewish Messiah is the indication that the time is now. Uh, the world is coming to seek him as the Savior. And then in verse 24, uh, Jesus spoke about his own death. The time is now for him to be glorified. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is, is coming to Jerusalem to die. Verses 25 and 26, he, he did, expands upon uh, what he said. The pattern for his own life is that he must uh, die and, and rise again, and a great harvest will result from that. Uh, in verses 25 and 26, he says, this is the same pattern every disciple of Jesus must also follow. Uh, that, that death will precede life. He who loves his life, verse 25, loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then these verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 27 to 30, this is immediately followed. This is a seamless transition. And Jesus is going to, to turn his attention from uh, the, the cross, the implications of the cross for his disciples, to, he's going to cycle back around to what it means for him. And, and how is he feeling about this reality of the cross looming over him and how it is casting a shadow over his earthly life with an increasing darkness. If you, if you look at me beginning in verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul has become dismayed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. 
I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had sundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Would you pause and and pray with me? Father, we come to you. Even as we saw Jesus come to you in prayer just now. Father, we would ask that you would be glorified. That by the power of your word and by the, the light of your spirit. Shining upon our hearts and our eyes and our lives. That you would use your word now. To grant us understanding into who you are. What you sent your son to do. Who we are before you and how we are to respond to you. Father, may you use and bless this time to increase our faith, to encourage us, to draw us to yourself through your son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. As we look at these verses, I I marvel just in, in the providence of God that we get to this passage at this exact week. Uh, as we hit uh, the, the Passion Week uh, in our own time, we get to, to study and look at uh, the, the very beginning of the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. And we get to look into uh, the, the dark shadow of the cross uh, even as we enter into this same week. So imagine what it would be like if you knew that you were going to die on Friday. Uh, or or the, the teacher that you've been following for years well, was going to die on Friday. And in these verses, uh, we get to look into the shadow that the cross is casting over the life of Christ at this moment. And, and as we look into the shadow, believe it or not, we're going to be able to see stuff. What we're going to see is four affirmations made about God and about ourselves. The first affirmation is, is seen at the very beginning of verse 27. We could call this the son's turmoil uh, affirms the seriousness of sin. The, the legacy standard says, now my soul has become dismayed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus makes this statement that his soul uh, has become into a a state or into a condition. And there's various ways of translating this word. Uh, It's a very strong word. It can be translated as dismayed uh, or uh, troubled or or disturbed. Uh, The the idea is that there is a a shaking or a stirring up of something. And you know that feeling that you get within your own uh, heart and soul. Uh, There's a great agitation within you. And Jesus is is crying out and saying this is how he feels. Jesus is announcing this great disturbance within himself and this might be an allusion to Psalm 42 verse 11. Says why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God for I shall yet praise him. 
the help of my countenance and my God. And it's interesting to see Jesus expressing uh, the, the depths of his emotion, of how he is feeling within himself, but then he, he works his way out of that. He does exactly what Psalm 42.11 says. Now he's in despair, but then hopes in God. Turns to the Lord in prayer, and he asks a, a, a question of God. My soul has been dismayed. What shall I say? And then he, he immediately offers a prayer to the Father. And he says, uh, Father, would you, would you save me from this hour? And this is in line with what Jesus is going to, to pray a couple days later in the Garden of Gethsemane. What we're looking at uh, right now is either on Monday or Tuesday of the Passion Week. And later on, on, on Thursday night... Jesus is going to be praying. Uh, and, and this is not recorded in John's Gospel, but it, it is recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. And uh, in those Gospels, Jesus is going to, to ask the Father for this cup to be removed from him. And, and when he says this cup, he is referring to the cup of God's wrath. In an Old Testament term, uh, referring to uh, the wrath that is stored up by God. Uh, and this is what is going to, uh, Jesus is going to, to face on the cross. This is what is leading to uh, the great disturbance within his soul. Uh, the shadow of the cross is looming over him as he's preparing to take on uh, the sins of men. Holy God, never sinned before, nor will. Uh, and he is convulsing on the inside at the idea of taking sin upon himself. Right, you and I are tempted towards sin. He's tempted towards holiness. Now, that is contrary to his nature, to take sin upon himself. And we, we need to see uh, this response that he has. Because it's all too easy for you and I to forget the seriousness of sin. Uh, we, we treat it lightly. We minimize our sin but, but we need to, to let the, the turmoil within Christ's soul sink into our hearts and minds here. Now, it, it has been recorded that on one occasion, the, the famous French philosopher Voltaire was asked, asked whether he thought that, that God w- would forgive him for some terrible sin. And, and he replied, forgive, that, that's his job. And many of us have that same mindset. We don't call it that, but we have this expectation that no matter what we do, God will forgive us. Uh, and that is true. If we look to Jesus in faith, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. Each and every sin that we have committed in the past, are committing in the present, will commit in the future, known and unknown. And it can all be paid for through faith in Christ because that is how efficient his sacrifice is on the cross. Sometimes we have this mindset that we can continue in sin. In Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The Apostle Paul asks that question and he answers it. Yeah, may it never be. That's minimizing sin. Last week we talked about the teaching of Jesus on the cost of discipleship. We spoke about salvation. Our salvation is absolutely free. Uh, but discipleship following Jesus will cost us everything. Uh, and, and this kind of adds an additional layer to that. 
salvation is free for us. Discipleship is costly, but our salvation that is free for us, it cost Jesus everything. He paid dearly so that we could be saved. Throughout church history, there have been many Christian martyrs who have faced death bravely. If you read through Fox's book of martyrs, which is worthy of being read by each and every one of us. A reminder that where the time and space that we live in is unique in history. But, but in that book, you'll, you'll see many accounts of Christian martyrs who, who go and are violently killed. And they, uh, they go to, uh, the, uh, uh, to be burned at the stake or, or to be beheaded. And they go bravely, unflinchingly, unwaveringly. So that, that draws attention. You're like, why is Jesus in so much turmoil here? Right? Are the Christian martyrs more brave than Christ himself? No. But what Jesus is, is uh, in turmoil about here is not just death. He is facing a fate worse than death. Now, Christian martyrs who, who die violently or uh, Christian saints who, who die in their sleep in old age, we, we have no fear of death Because when we die, we are ushered into the presence of God. We don't have to uh, fear facing the wrath of God at any point in time. That's why we can boldly face death. We don't face hell or judgment. But Jesus faced the wrath of God so that we would have that confidence. He faced that for you and I so that we would not have to shrink back from death. Death has lost its sting because Jesus took our sin upon himself. And by faith, his righteousness is placed on our accounts. Profound to think about. The sinless one is going to take the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is weighty. This is what needs to be thought about and meditated upon this week and every week. Amen? Now I'll draw your attention to two big points of application here. Again, the first being that all too often we do not take sin as seriously as we should. We do not think and live as if sin is a big deal. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly seeking to convince us that it is exactly that. It's not that big of a deal, right? When you're in conversation with yourself about your own sin, what's your tendency? It'll be okay. It's not that serious. The the world around you. If you're ever in, a, in an instance of needing to, to confess uh, sin to an unbeliever or talk about something that took place, what's their usual response? Eh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, wrote, wrote a, a book on uh, how Satan seeks to deceive us about the seriousness of sin. He says that Satan has several devices to deceive, entangle, and undo the souls of men. He knows that if he presents sin in its true nature and dress, they would fly from it rather than yield. 
Right? If we see sin in all of its ugliness, what would we do? We wouldn't run towards it. We would run away from it. Right? Sin doesn't show us this is how much carnage can be brought into your life if you do this. If you make these decisions, you can ruin your life. That's not what gets, sin, uh, gets us to, to pursue sin. It's the exact opposite. Sin promises what it cannot deliver. Thomas Brooks continues, he says, He presents it to us painted over with the show of virtue that we may more easily be overcome and take pleasure in committing it. He presents covetousness as good management and drunkenness as good fellowship. But sin is just as filthy and vile when it is painted in virtue's colors. A poisonous pill is just as poisonous when it is covered with gold. And a wolf is still a wolf when wearing sheep's clothing. Consider that these very sins which Satan paints in virtue, and I would add that that the same sins that we seek to minimize also cost the blood of the Lord Jesus in sorrow and death. That's what what needs to be our our meditation. We need to see the seriousness of sin. Then I I would point to a second point of application here, that we should recognize and remember that that inner turmoil uh, is not the same as sin. Yes, there are times uh, when when a turmoil inside of us uh, is showing us that there is sin in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, But there are other moments when we are battling against temptation within and it is not sin. Jesus is in turmoil here, but he is not in sin here. J.C. Ryle put it this way, there is a faithless despondency which is blameworthy and must be resisted repented of and brought to the fountain for all sin that that it may be pardoned right there are some times in our life when we are in turmoil and despondency and we need to see and trace that back see what we are despondent about and say this is sinful and i need to confess it and forsake it and bring it to jesus but he says the mere presence of fight and strife and conflict in our hearts is in itself no sin. And I love this. The believer may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. Right? Now, there are times where we need to be fighting that battle against sin. If we are at peace when there is sin in our hearts, there's problems and situations. Right? We should be at war against that sin in our hearts. And so there needs to be an inner battle. There needs to be an inner turmoil if we are serious about fighting against sin. What Colossians 3 says, put to death what is in you. Uh, there's a battle there. The emotions of Jesus affirm the seriousness of sin and how we are to, to view it, how we are to battle it. But then there's a, a second affirmation. comes at the, the end of verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28. Uh, the son's determination affirms his submission to God. Jesus had just prayed, Father, save me from this hour. But then he says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's interesting that that's back to back, right? Father, deliver me from this hour. And then, but wait a second. This is why I came. And in the Greek, there's a, a sharp contrast there. That, that English word that is, translated, that is but, uh, in the Greek, it's a very uh, strong contrasting word. Uh, and so you might uh, paraphrase or what Jesus is saying here. says, but no, this is why I came. He may pray, Father, deliver me from this hour. 
But this is the hour that he has been heading towards his entire life in ministry, and he's saying, I'm not going to turn back now. If the, the humanity of Jesus was, was affirmed in his prayer for deliverance, we might say that this is uh, an affirmation of uh, his uh, deity. Now that he, he is absolutely determined to go to the cross. Now he is absolutely determined to obey and glorify God the Father. Right? That, that is his prayer at the beginning of verse 28. Father, glorify your name. And again, that mirrors exactly what Jesus uh, is going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, on that Thursday night. Matthew records that, that Jesus prayed three times for, for the cup to be removed. And yet after each time he, he prays, Lord, if you would will, uh, remove this cup from me. Uh, he circles around at the end of each of those prayers and he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is, is feeling the inner turmoil of the moment within his soul, but he does not act according to the inner turmoil. He acts according to truth. Uh, he acts according to uh, the, the character and the word of God. He's not driven aside by every fleeting emotion. He is determined to submit to the will and the purpose of God the Father. Uh, and he is determined to act uh, in obedience to God and to act for God's glory. Now that's the second part of the prayer, right? Father, remove uh, this hour from me, save me from this hour, but then, wait a second, no, this is why I came. So Father, glorify yourself right now. Jesus came to earth to, to live and die for sinners in submission to the will of God the Father and all of this to glorify God. George Whitfield once spoke to a, a colonial pastor named William Tennant. And he said, Brother Tennant, you're, you're the oldest man among us. Do you not rejoice to think that your time is so near at hand when you will be called home? And William Tennant replied, My business is to live as long as I can, as well as I can, and to serve my master as faithfully as I can until he sh shall think proper to call me home. That is submission to God's will. That is the submission that the, the disciples of Christ are called to, to live out. But, but where, do we, uh, where do we get that type of submission? How, how do we develop that in our hearts and lives? By looking to the submission of the Son to the Father by looking at the pattern of submission that we have here in Christ. He is the example of what it looks like for you and I to follow God. And Jesus taught us to pray, a prayer that you are probably very familiar with. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, it is easy to pray that, right? We should, we should be uh, praying that on a regular basis. And it's easy to say the words. But it's more difficult to actually live them out. But what Jesus is going to instruct us in, he's also going to model for us. He says, pray this, and now I'll show you what that looks like. He submitted himself to the Father's plan, even to the point of death on the cross. The most humiliating of all human deaths. And we'll look at that on Friday. 
The cross was intended to be an act of absolute humiliation. But what we see is something more in Christ. That we must be willing to submit ourselves to that degree. Again, easy to speak the words in prayer. More difficult to actually uh, desire for God to answer those words, right? Sometimes we're afraid to pray that. And why? Because we don't know where God's will is going to lead. Or sometimes there's a, uh, an understanding that I know what I need to do, but I don't, I'm kind of dragging my feet and doing it. And if I pray, God, your will be done, I know he's going he's to drag me over there. And I'm going to have to do it. So sometimes we, we don't desire God's will. We'll, we'll, we'll speak it and say, God, may your will be done, but we don't desire it in our hearts. And it's even more difficult to then actually go and walk in obedience to God. But this is the pattern that we see that we are to follow in Christ. And there can be some inner turmoil that arises when we are wrestling with whether or not we should submit ourselves to God. And I would encourage you, to, if we were to step out of this a little bit, we can just follow the pattern that Jesus models here. Pray, prioritize, and then obey. Right? You pray to God, pouring out your heart to Him. Asking for strength, asking for wisdom, asking for guidance. You can, you can pray for the deliverance from your circumstances. You can pray anything that you want, making your requests be known to God. But then prioritize. Establish God's will and God's glory as your priority in life and in that particular moment. And God's will involves desiring and welcoming His ends, His means, and His timing. Or you could say His goals, His methods, and His calendar. Because sometimes we get frustrated with God uh, not working uh, according to our timetable, right? Hey God, you were supposed to have that done for me. Uh, why, why are you taking so long? And then we are in turmoil because God's not meeting our timetable or he's not uh, working in uh, the way that we want him to work or towards the end goal that we want. We must pray. We must prioritize God's will over our own will. And then we have to obey. We have to actually walk in obedience and not live on the whims of our emotions uh, but live according to the truth of God's Word. Obey His commands. Obey His prohibitions. Live according to His wisdom uh, and His ways rather than your own ways and your own wisdom. And we can pray to God again, making the, the biggest requests imaginable, but we should always add, that, add at the end of those prayers, yet not my will, but your will be done. And that is really the highest prayer that a believer can offer, right? The Lord, here's what I would love to see take place in my life and in the lives of others. But Lord, you know best, and I want your, to, your will to be done rather than my own. I want your glory. I want your name to be lifted up in my life and in the lives of others. That needs to be our prayer. And that is the pattern that we see here. That is what is affirmed for us. We see the son's turmoil affirms the seriousness of sin. We see the son's determination affirms his submission to God. Thirdly, 
second part of verse 28, we see the Father's voice affirms His eternal plan. It says, Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And so Jesus prays for the Father to be glorified. And then what's the Father's response? I have already and I will continue to do so. And this is the third time during Jesus' earthly ministry where, where the Father has spoken audibly from heaven. The first occasion was at uh, the baptism of Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. It says that uh, when Jesus came up out of the water, it says, Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, God the Father is saying, This is the one that you are commanded to listen to. This is the one whom I have sent into the world. Obey him. The second occasion was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17 says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then there is this occasion here while Jesus is, is teaching in the temple in Jerusalem at the very end of his ministry. And, and the Father speaks in response to the Son's prayer, and God is actually affirming multiple things here. Uh, he is uh, affirming a unique relationship with the Son, right? Now, many people will cry out to God asking for a sign. Many people cry out to God uh, asking for an audible response, but God doesn't usually thunder down uh, in an audible voice. So God, God's response affirms a unique relationship with Jesus as His Son, God's response also affirms that he has already been at work in the life and ministry of Jesus. He has been working this whole time and he will continue to work. God affirms that he will intend to do through Jesus. Now there is more glory to come as the shadow of the cross looms. But God's response is immediate and it is emphatic because the prayer of God the Son is in perfect alignment with the will of of God the Father. All right. uh, God's main objective in all of human history is, is to glorify His name. Now, that is the eternal plan of the triune God. Uh, and Jesus' is, is prayer here is that God would be glorified. Now, my children have become addicted to having choices for different things. One of my children, who shall remain nameless, tends to be contrary cooking breakfast in the morning. Uh, he will often ask for, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm putting breakfast sausages into the microwave, he'll say, oh, can I have those in the oven? Can I have those on the stovetop? Can I have it cold? Well, however I'm doing it, he'll ask the other way. But another child will, will look and see what I am already doing. And then he will ask me uh, to have his breakfast that way. If I'm putting uh, the, the sausages in the, in the microwave, he says, da can I have my sausages in the microwave? And I say, yes, son, absolutely. You can, you can have that. And, and I'm happy to do that because he's asking me to do what I'm already doing. And that is exactly what is taking place here. Jesus says, glorify your name, Father. And God says, all right, I can do that. I have been and I will continue to do so. God the Son prays for God the Father to be glorified. And God the Father immediately answers. 
Because that prayer is in perfect alignment with his will. And God's eternal plan is set forth here. To bring glory to his name through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Later on in John chapter 17, which is the true Lord's prayer. Jesus prays this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He says, I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus echoes what God the Father says here. He says, Father, you have been glorified in my life and everything that I've done. And now continue to work, continue to glorify both you and I. God's glory is the focus of his eternal plan. Well, why does that matter for you and I? John Piper says this, that God's own glory is uppermost in his affections. In everything that he does, his purpose is to preserve and display that glory. To say his glory is uppermost in his own affections means that he puts a greater value on it than on anything else. He delights in his glory above all things. God's overwhelming passion is to exalt the value of his glory. To that end, he seeks to display it and to oppose those who belittle it and to vindicate it from all contempt. As those who follow Jesus, we we need to to lose our appetite for self-glory. And we need to develop an appetite for the glory of God. And as we do that, guess what we're going to begin to see? That we'll see more and more of our prayers answered. Right? When, when, when we're praying to God and we're like, He doesn't answer any of my prayers. Well, what are you praying? Right? You, you, you pray, you, ask, you have not because you ask not, and you, you ask according to your own passions, your own desires. Now, there's no seeking to align yourself under the sovereign God. You want God to just be your genie and do whatever you want. But that's not how it works. What we are seeing in this chapter is that the world has an appetite for things other than God. In in the the scene with uh, Mary anointing Jesus, we we see that Judas loves money and wants money more than he wants Jesus. When when Jesus is coming into the, the city of Jerusalem, the crowds want political independence more than they want a relationship with God. They don't want forgiveness of sin. They want Rome off their back. Later on in this chapter, we're going to see people who love the approval of man. They believe, but because of the consequences of belief in Jesus, they were unwilling to stand publicly for him. They they believe secretly, but not uh, proclaiming that faith. Because they didn't want to get thrown out of the synagogue. Seen in verse 42. We'll get there. But this will not do for us. We must seek God the Father and accept the eternal plan that He has established in and through His Son, Jesus. We are to align ourselves under God's eternal plan, not try and create our own temporary plan. God's voice booming from the heavens in this scene is an affirmation of His eternal plan. Then there's a a fourth affirmation that we see here in verses 29 and 30. The the people's confusion affirms their hardened hearts. 
So the crowd of people, verse 29, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying an angel has spoken to him. So one part of the crowd says, oh, this was just a natural sound of thunder. Another part of the crowd says, no, this was a supernatural voice of an angel. But for the disciples of Jesus who were mixed into that crowd that day, uh, that was an encouragement. That was an affirmation of God the Father about His Son. And Jesus clarifies this point in verse 30. He says, this was not for me. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. And God the Father is affirming that it is His desire for God the Son to go to the cross. Now this is really important for the disciples to, to, to see, or to, I guess to hear, that they need that affirmation because what would be going through their minds when this man that they thought was the Messiah is killed, right? What, what questions would you be asking? Has God's plan been thwarted, right? Uh, have, have the Jewish leaders in their hatred for Jesus thwarted the plan of God? Is God's plan thrown down by man? Now, is there some other uh, explanation? What is taking place? God's voice here shows us that the death of the Messiah uh, is intended. But, but the audible voice of God booming from the sky, it's amazing, right? Was not perceived and understood by the crowds. And this is not because God mumbled. Okay? That, that's not the explanation here. The result of misunderstanding is due to the hardness of the people's hearts. Romans 1 talks about uh, that the natural man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, you could say that we suppressed the truth and then we suppressed that we suppressed it. So we don't even know what we did. Those of you who are parents have probably had your child at one point or another. You're speaking to them and they don't respond. Right? And you're like, I know that you hear me. You're acting like you don't. And then they say, oh, what? What? Are you talking to me? They know. They say that they didn't hear. But that's not true. It's like the, they're treating you like the, the teacher in the old Charlie Brown cartoons. What do you, what's the only word that you hear the teacher say? Wah, 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 wah. Right? That's what's taking place here. The misunderstanding on the part of the, the crowd is due to the hardness of their, their hearts. And this is actually how we all are in our natural sinful state. We suppress the truth about God, and, and this scene affirms it. And actually, a little bit later in this uh, chapter, if you look down to verse uh, 37, you see that Jesus is going to address this. In the next scene in, in the chapter, he says, but, but though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. So that the, the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and returned, and I heal them. Think about this. The audible voice of God 
booms in the temple and they're not sure what happened. Right? This is the hardness of their hearts, which is affirmed here. And these verses affirm these truths for us. As Jesus approaches the cross, these things are affirmed. Right? The seriousness of sin, the Son's submission to the Father, the eternal plan of God to send His Son to the cross to die on behalf of sinners. And just in case you weren't convinced, we see that the sinfulness of humanity. And as Christians, what we are to do with all of these separate threads, all of these truths are affirmed for us here. We're to take up these threads and tie them all together in the cross. That's what God does for us here. We are all sinners, and our sin was so serious that the Son of God had to come and die to save us. There was no other escape. And in doing this, Jesus is, is demonstrating his submission. He's, he's living out the eternal plan of God to save a people for himself. Now, uh, as Americans, our culture has changed in many significant ways in the last couple of decades. All right, we, we now tend to, to find common ground with others uh, based upon really kind of, the, you could say, the, the media that we like to consume. Right? Have you ever talked with somebody and uh, you have bonded with them because you root for the same sports team? You know, or you bond with them because you've watched the same television shows? Right? You can quote the show and they, their eyes light up like, oh, I know that joke. And I know where that joke comes from. Right? We tend to bond in that way. In his book, Competing Spectacles, which I would highly recommend, author Tony Ranke says this, Our culture is no longer banded together by shared beliefs. It's drawn together by shared spectacles. Like Halloween costumes designed to match the most popular movies, we seek our self-identity inside the cultural spectacles we share together. That's a powerful observation about the world around us. But that cannot be true for us as Christians. Uh, what, what brings us together on Sunday mornings, what brings us together during the week, uh, what unites us all in fellowship as a church is not our common interests, our common consumption of uh, television and radio and movies. What unites us together is the cross of Christ. What he has done for us. We are united to him in faith and he unites each of us together, knits us together as a church. For Christians, there are not to be common cultural spectacles. Our common spectacle is the cross of Christ. And the shadow of the cross must loom over our hearts each and every day. But again, I would say especially this week, right? As we are hopefully setting some things aside this week to to look to Jesus, to, to meditate upon who he is and what he is what he has done and what he is doing. In this week of all weeks, we must meditate and look to the cross of, of Jesus. We must pick up, pick up all of these threads that are woven together here and reflect upon them and see uh, that they lead us to the cross of Jesus. We will gather together on Friday night, 630, to, to look more at the cross. 
And we'll gather together next Sunday morning, as we do every Sunday morning, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And it's amazing. The next passage in John, again, just in, in the providence of God, Jesus is going to reflect upon what what does his death on the cross bring forth? What does it mean for us? Why is it significant? That's what we get to look at next Sunday. But may we begin to, to meditate upon these truths this week. Amen.